It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's two basic schools of thought in moral philosophy. The first is the absolutist approach, epitomized by Immanuel Kant. Now, Kant held that the morality of an action is completely independent of its consequences. If an act is immoral, it's always immoral, regardless of the context and regardless of the effects. Uh, This is called a categorical imperative. Stealing is wrong, so stealing is always wrong. Uh, Even if you steal a loaf of bread uh, from a a wealthy baker who um, was probably going to throw it away anyway, and you give it to uh, starving orphans, stealing is an immoral act, so by stealing that bread, uh, you acted unethically. Now, the other school of thought is what's known as utilitarianism. And utilitarians like uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, they contend that the morality of an action is completely dependent on its consequences. Uh, They say your goal should be to do um, the the most good you can for the most people. And how you get there doesn't doesn't really matter as long as you get there. Uh, The ends justify the means. So uh, stealing bread to feed uh, starving orphans would, would uh, absolutely be an ethically sound act. Now, the problem with the utilitarian approach is that it's impossible to prejudge what the exact consequences of any, any given act will be. Uh, economists talk about uh, the law of unintended consequences, and uh, even when you, you can know what's going to happen, it's, it's impossible to objectively measure the point Uh, at which the ends uh, truly do justify the means. So, for instance, how good of a cause would you have to be serving to make, um, I don't know, pulling people out of their beds in the middle of the night and hacking them to death with a broadsword? A morally defensible act. Uh, Of course, realistically, uh, most people, and even most philosophers, uh, they come down somewhere, somewhere in between Kant and Mill. Uh, a little collateral damage is okay if your intentions are good, but uh, there are some lines that you just don't cross. I think most Americans agree that fighting terrorism, uh, or groups like uh, ISIS, for example, is a worthy goal. Uh, but we get a little uneasy when we hear about innocent civilians getting caught in the crossfire. Uh, a few years back, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright famously said that uh, damaging Saddam Hussein's regime in in Iraq uh, through crippling economic sanctions was a worthy enough goal that it justified the deaths of tens of thousands of Iraqi children. Most Americans supported the administration's sanctions, but would they have had uh, we known going in about all the kids that were going to die as a result? It's a hard question. If your goal is virtuous enough, is it okay to kill innocent civilians? Now, Immanuel Kant would almost certainly say no. But John Brown said yes, and he said it emphatically, and he acted on it. 
You see, John Brown was an abolitionist, but he wasn't like other abolitionists. Most abolitionists were, uh, they were adamantly opposed uh, to violence on uh, New Testament, you know, Christian principles. They favored political pressure or, or civil disobedience, but bloodshed was, was out of the question, a line that should never be crossed. Now, Brown was just as devout as most abolitionists, and probably much more so than most. But his brand of Christianity was, it was rooted in uh, old-school Puritanism, Old Testament fire-and-brimstone Puritanism. And he thought that violence was not only acceptable to fight slavery, it was absolutely necessary and even mandatory. He believed that it was his God-given duty to fight slavery through any and every possible means. And if that includes killing some innocent people, well, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Now, another trouble with taking the the ends justify the means approach, uh, when you're talking about violence, uh, even terrorism, is that it's difficult to agree on uh, any kind of, uh, you know, objective morality. You know, looking back from 150 years in the future, we can stipulate that bringing an end to slavery was, you know, it was a good objective. But, uh, of course, that wasn't uh, universally acknowledged at the time. And today, I, I don't know that there are any issues comparable to how slavery was in the 1850s in terms of um, the passions it stirred up. But I'm sure there are uh, plenty of political goals that half the population would view as virtuous and the other half would view as extreme or even abhorrent. Uh, If you start tolerating the use of violence to achieve political ends, you end up with a a tit-for-tat escalation, and, and next thing you know, you're in the middle of a civil war. So take the most controversial issue you can think of today and imagine that the two sides start killing each other over it and uh, the broad societal consequences are not good. And a big part of that is that so much depends on perception. Uh, No one ever views himself as the bad guy. If you were in the South in uh, 1859, and actually a lot of people, perhaps even a majority in the North too, you probably would have viewed John Brown as a brutal murderer and a terrorist. If you were a northern abolitionist, though, he was an idealistic crusader and eventually a martyr. The Concord uh, transcendentalists like Emerson and Thoreau painted John Brown as a Jesus-like figure, sacrificing himself on the altar of slavery to wash away the nation's sins. Perceptions, societal and individual, can change very quickly, too. To abolitionist Wendell Phillips, Abraham Lincoln, a politician who was morally opposed to slavery in theory, but repeatedly emphasized that he was not an abolitionist and had no intention of interfering with slavery in the South. Uh, To Phillips, Lincoln was, quote, the slave hound of Illinois. He has evidently not a drop of anti-slavery blood in his veins, and he seems incapable of uttering a humane or generous sentiment respecting the enslaved millions in our land, end quote. So uh, the man who would come to be known as the Great Emancipator, uh, back in the 1850s, he was not viewed as an ally by abolitionists. And, and indeed, uh, Phillips saw you know, moderates like Lincoln as an obstacle. But by 1864, Lincoln was describing the Civil War as a crusade to end slavery. 
And he spoke in religious uh, Old Testament terms that, you know, a Puritan like John Brown uh, would very much have approved of. In his second inaugural address, Lincoln, who, remember, just three years earlier, dismissed any suggestion uh, of using violence as a means of accomplishing abolitionist ends, uh, he ominously declared in words that echoed John Brown's own, Every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part one of our look at the life of John Brown. Now, this is going to be a little different from what we've done in the past because we're really starting to get into politics and even you know, uh, philosophy, as I, I touched on in, in the beginning, when we start looking at Brown. And I hope you'll bear with me. I, I think that you'll enjoy it. I really enjoyed researching Brown. I, I found that the uh, conception of, that I had of him going in was uh, very limited, and there was a lot more to him, and, and I think uh, a lot more to his effect on history than maybe what uh, initially meets the eye. And I also wanted to thank you all for being so patient with me and getting this episode out. Uh, I've had some, we'll call it technical difficulties, and that combined with a, a really busy uh, workload uh, with day job stuff has made it really difficult for me to work on, on the podcast uh, the last couple months. Now, that doesn't mean I haven't been working on it. I've been uh, working ahead with research, so hopefully I'll be able to turn this trend around and start getting these episodes out more frequently. But the important thing is that... Just because you don't hear from me for uh, a month or two or however long, don't give up on me. I'll keep making this show as long as there are people still willing to listen to it. But again, thank you for your patience. Uh, anybody who'd like to uh, reach me, you can email the show at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. Gray is spelled uh, with an E, the English way or the old-fashioned way, however you want to look at it. And as always... Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Most modern historians try to stay away from philosophy and value and morality judgments and that sort of thing. Fortunately, I do not claim to be any sort of certified historian or whatever that means, but you'll please forgive me if I do go a little astray in this episode. Uh, I promise you next time we will get back into the war I tend to enjoy that part of it a little bit more myself, but this stuff is important. I think it's important to lay the foundation and uh, establish what led to the war, uh, if for no other reason than it gives us a window into the, um, the motivations uh, of the men who were fighting to a greater or lesser degree. So with that said, we will dive into some, I guess you would call it sociology to get started here. Uh, leading up to the Civil War, most Southerners, they viewed abolitionism as just another fad of New England Puritan arrogance. Southerner Charles Burr said, quote, The nature of Puritanism is to tolerate nothing that it dislikes and to fight everything that dislikes it. And accordingly, Puritanism was destroying social unity and sowing the seeds of anarchy, despotism, and war until its harvest of death was ready to be gathered. So to Southerners, abolitionists were self-righteous moral lecturers, uh, but they didn't have the courage of their convictions. 
the modern term that we would use is virtue signaling. Now, by mid-19th century, the North was no longer majority Puritan in a religious sense. The moralist tradition was still there and, and can still be seen in a lot of ways to this day. But the religious conviction wasn't quite so strong for the most part. But there were some holdouts, like John Brown, for example. His ancestor, Peter Brown, was from the original Puritan stock, having crossed on the Mayflower and settled in Connecticut. The family had a tradition of preachers who firmly believed in Calvinist predestination. Owen Brown, John's father, was a strident abolitionist before, uh, well, before it was cool, and one of the earliest supporters of the Underground Railroad. He and his wife, Ruth, raised their eight kids in a home focused around religion. Uh, the kids learned to read from the, the fire and brimstone sermons of preacher Jonathan Edwards. The fourth child, John, was born in Connecticut in 1800, uh, but the family moved to Ohio in 1805. Uh, Owen ran a tannery there, uh, at one point taking on as an apprentice a young man by the name of Jesse Grant, uh, whose son, Ulysses, uh, would go on to some renown. Uh, John troubled his father, Owen, uh, while he was a boy because he rejected religious instruction. But at the age of 16, he had an awakening, and he became fiercely devout. And he inherited not only his father's devotion, but also his abolitionism. Uh, most early abolitionists in the U.S. were uh, wealthy intellectuals, but the Browns didn't fit that mold. They were fairly poor, or um, I guess you might more accurately say working class, uh, primarily tradesmen. They always fed their families, and there wasn't any danger of starvation, but, but we're not talking about people who uh, had trust funds or anything. So John had just a little bit of formal education, but he decided at the age of 17 that he was going to enroll in a, a New England seminary with his sights on becoming a minister. Uh, but he ran out of money and decided instead that he would return to Ohio and open, open a tannery like his father. Um, this still at the age of 17. He married Diane Lusk, a fellow Puritan, in 1820, and, and she bore him seven children before dying in childbirth. The Brown family moved to New Richmond, Pennsylvania in 1825, where John saw an opportunity for uh, another tannery business. And this tannery was moderately successful, uh, having as many as 15 employees at one point. After Diane's death in 1833, John married Mary Ann Day in 1834. Mary would have 13 kids with John, bringing his total uh, to an impressive 20, though uh, sadly only eight made it to adulthood. Uh, four would die of dysentery in one tragic week in 1842. Now, John Brown was an intensely strict, though devoted father. His biographer, David Reynolds, records a particularly noteworthy incident involving the oldest son, John Jr. Now, the senior Brown kept what he referred to as a ledger of transgressions, recording every time that John Jr. misbehaved. The ledger kept track of, for each transgression, uh, how many lashes that the boy's behavior had earned him. When the ledger reached an unacceptable threshold, John Sr. took Jr. behind the shed for his punishment, and in this case, a dozen lashes. 
However, after only delivering one or two, John Sr. took off his shirt and he ordered John Jr. to deliver the rest of the lashes to him. Now, unsurprisingly, the, uh, the incident made an impression on Jr. It was intended to emphasize both um, that the elder Brown bore some of the responsibility for his son's sins, and also um, to instill a, a message of sacrifice, like Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of humanity. Now, it's pretty heavy stuff, especially when you consider the actions that John Brown would take later in life. So in 1836, Brown moved his family back to Ohio, where he opened another tannery, and he took out a loan to buy a farm and to speculate in real estate. Now, he raised some eyebrows in the community by hiring free blacks to work on the farm. But he was in an area with a a relatively large abolitionist population, so it it didn't cause too much of a commotion. And he was well-established in the community. He he, uh, served as the postmaster, he taught Sunday school, and he um, organized an, an informal library. And less conspicuously, he became the leader uh, in the Underground Railroad, which was fairly active in that uh, part of Ohio. So he had built a secret room in his barn where he would hide runaway slaves, and he regularly invited local free blacks to his home just for social visits. Even among the abolitionists in Ohio, uh, that was odd behavior. But the practice of having free blacks over his visitors made it so that the sight of blacks at the Brown Farm was a fairly routine occurrence. So the Underground Railroad passengers drew less attention. Brown's relationships with with the free blacks was unusual, but it didn't cause too much of a stir. Just, you know, the unorthodox behavior of an eccentric. But what did cause a bit of commotion was was when he invited a, a black family to attend a service at the Congregationalist Church that the Brown family attended. Now, that in itself was pretty unconventional, but what really led to an uproar was when John Brown insisted that the black family sit in the front pew right alongside the Brown family. You, you see, Congregationalists would congratulate themselves on on their open-mindedness in that they did allow blacks to attend their services. But, you know, they had to sit in the back. And Brown's refusal uh, to move the family led to a a threat to revoke his membership should he ever repeat the indiscretion. Brown beat the church leaders to the punch, though, and he voluntarily resigned his membership in response to the threat. At the tannery, he continued to do what could be considered a respectable level of business, but he never quite made enough to get himself out of the debt that he had taken on with the real estate speculation loan. And because of that, when a pretty severe recession hit in 1839, Brown was financially devastated. Losing nearly all of his assets, he attempted several other business ventures to dig out of the hole, but the drop in real estate prices was too great. After numerous court judgments were entered against him, he was forced to file for bankruptcy protection in 1842. 
One of uh, Brown's several business ventures had involved trading wool, and he earned himself a reputation as a, a bit of an expert on grading the quality of the stuff. And that reputation led to a business partnership with a man by the name of Simon Perkins. Now, Perkins put up the money. Brown couldn't offer any of that. And, uh, but he did supply the know-how. And together, they started a wool co-op, which they opened in Springfield, Massachusetts. Uh, the basic idea was for wool farmers to work together. Um, and through their group solidarity, they could negotiate higher wool prices, particularly for the, uh, the high-quality wool. But the Boston merchants, they wouldn't get on board. Uh, they simply bought from whoever was priced the lowest. And Brown's co-op was left with a huge surplus of wool that it needed to unload. And of course, the farmers who had provided the wool were waiting on payment. So to get around the, the Boston merchants, Brown arranged to travel to London, where he hoped that he could partner directly with, with the textile manufacturers who purchased the wool from the Boston merchants. The trip, though, was uh, an absolute debacle. The manufacturers weren't interested in, in paying any higher prices than the merchants, and Brown was forced to sell the wool inventory for a lower price than what he could have received in Boston. And on top of that, the trip cost the business $40,000 and predictably caused it to go out of business. A bunch of lawsuits followed from angry farmers who were paid only a small percentage of the price that their wool would have fetched from the Boston merchants. The co-op was another business failure for John Brown, but his time in Springfield, Massachusetts was a lot more important for other reasons. Uh, most notably, Springfield was a, an important hub of the abolitionist movement, and so Brown was able to become acquainted with multiple influential abolitionists, including Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth. He also connected with several wealthy businessmen whose uh, financial support would later be critical to his efforts. Over dinner in 1847, Brown, uh, for the first time, laid out to Frederick Douglass a plan for confronting slavery with violent opposition. Uh, Douglass recalled that the plan involved hiding in the Appalachian Mountains and conducting raids on Virginia plantations and then plantations further south. Freed slaves would be placed uh, with the Underground Railroad and taken to Canada, uh, unless they were men of fighting age, in which case they would be armed and trained and uh, become part of the raiding force. Douglas thought the plan was completely unrealistic and unworkable, but Brown's sincerity and his, his commitment caught Douglas's attention. Uh, he wrote of the future Harper's Ferry raider, quote, Brown, though a white gentleman, is in sympathy a black man and as deeply interested in our cause as though his own soul had been pierced with the irons of slavery, end quote. Brown's plan was especially noteworthy to Douglas because it contrasted so sharply with uh, what was being advocated by most abolitionists. The average abolitionist in 1847 was a wealthy intellectual from New England or a Pennsylvania Quaker. And both groups favored only nonviolent methods. Abolition was a, a political and intellectual movement and, and a religious movement, but it was never a violent movement. 
civil disobedience was the most radical tactic most abolitionists would even entertain. Brown, though, had been convinced that slavery was only going to end through bloodshed. Now, whether he was correct in, in that conclusion is up for debate. Uh, slavery had existed throughout America and throughout the world uh, since basically the beginning of recorded history, and probably before then. But it was on its way out. The European powers began outlawing slavery in the uh, early 19th century. Uh, Spain in 1811, Britain in 1833, and France in 1848. The slave trade was outlawed even earlier in nearly all Western countries, including the United States. And the prohibition was enforced pretty strictly by the Royal Navy. The New World, especially the areas with economies that relied on sugar plantations, held out longer. But by 1888, even Cuba and Brazil had ended the practice of slavery. Uh, would the United States, or you know, maybe the Confederate States, have held out as the last remaining slave power in the face of what would almost certainly have been universal international condemnation, and most likely economic ostracism, had the Civil War not occurred. It is, of course, impossible to say for sure, but for what it's worth, I'm inclined to say that it's pretty doubtful slavery would have survived into the 20th century. But, of course, my opinion doesn't matter. What matters is that John Brown was convinced that the success of the abolition movement was going to require a bloodbath. And as it turns out, this might be the single most startling example of self-fulfilling prophecy in American history, if not world history. So before we get too far into John Brown's abolitionism, we need to take a look at American abolitionism generally, if for no other reason than to see how far out of the mainstream that John Brown truly was. The abolitionist movement started in America uh, before the United States was even a thing. As early as the late 1600s, Quakers and Mennonites in Pennsylvania began uh, speaking out against slavery. Uh, Quakers in Philadelphia formed uh, f- the very first real abolitionist society, uh, in America anyway, in 1775, with none other than Benjamin Franklin serving as president. In 1790, Franklin introduced a petition to abolish slavery to Congress. Now, notwithstanding the respect that Franklin enjoyed throughout the country, uh, Congress decreed that it, quote, had not authority to interfere in the emancipation of slaves or even the treatment of them within any of the states, it remaining with the several states alone to provide any regulations therein which humanity or true policy may require. End quote. So it was a question for the states back when the Tenth Amendment still carried some weight. Southern congressmen were offended that the measure had even been introduced, and they insisted that it was entirely outside of uh, Congress's constitutional authority. Had they thought that there was any chance that Congress could exercise that sort of power, the Southern politicians said, their states would never have ratified the Constitution. Uh, Of course, many states did act on their own initiative uh, in the matter. Vermont was the the first state to legally abolish slavery, uh, doing so in 1777, and Pennsylvania wasn't far behind in 1780. 
The rest of New England followed suit uh, over the next few years, with most legislating a system of uh, gradual emancipation. As has often been noted, many of the founding fathers were, in fact, slave owners, though many of those voiced misgivings. Thomas Jefferson criticized the British for introducing the slave trade to the colonies, you know, like a a pusher, uh, getting the young states hooked on an addictive substance. As president, he championed narrowly defeated legislation that would prohibit slavery in new territories um, that would have uh, expanded upon the 1789 Northwest Ordinance, which banned slavery uh, northwest of the Ohio River. Writing shortly after the war, Southern politician Robert Hunter wrote that the Northwest Ordinance, passed 100 years before he was writing, quote, made the predominance of the non-slaveholding section of the government irresistible. End quote, and therefore put the country on the road to civil war. Prophetically, Jefferson said during his term in office, quote, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. End quote. And he lobbied as president for the abolition of the international slave trade, which we mentioned a minute ago, which was passed in 1807 and became a capital offense in 1820. It's worth noting that the Confederate Constitution adopted an identical provision. So Jefferson was a proponent of gradual emancipation uh, throughout the country, including a plan under which the federal government would pay owners for slave children, uh, educate the the children in trades, and assist their resettlement in the Caribbean. And he freed several of of his own slaves during his life, uh, a process that was called manumission, which was fairly common in the border states, especially in the years immediately following the Revolution. But in Jefferson's will, instead of freeing the remaining 130 or so slaves that that he still owned at the time of his death, uh, which was something he had discussed, they were instead sold to pay off debts that were owed by his estate. So Jefferson, like many of the early abolitionists, uh, thought that the best solution for both slaves and whites, was to promote colonies of emancipated former slaves outside of the United States, either in Africa or Santo Domingo. The prevailing thinking was that Europeans and Africans were uh, just too dissimilar constitutionally to live together harmoniously in one country without one group uh, subjugating the other. And so the American Colonization Society, founded in the 1820s, proposed and organized the uh, return of free slaves to Africa. Now, by 1820, of course, the vast majority of American slaves had been born in the United States, and they weren't any more familiar with Africa than they were with Europe or Asia. But nonetheless, the colony of Liberia was founded by uh, emancipated American slaves with the support of President James Monroe, Uh, for whom they named their capital Monrovia. The original settlers were absolutely devastated by disease, with around half dying before Liberia declared its independence in 1847. Now, Liberia was one of the the few African nations that was uh, able to come out of the uh, European conquests in uh, Africa of the 19th century uh, relatively unscathed, and that was due in large part to the support that it received from the United States. 
the colonization movement had quite a few well-known proponents, uh, along with Jefferson and Monroe, including Abraham Lincoln in his younger years, uh, Henry Clay, and even Uncle Tom's Cabin author Harriet Beecher Stowe. However, the American Colonization Society gradually lost steam and gave way to organizations which were focused on uh, emancipation and citizenship for slaves within the United States, Uh, most notably the American Anti-Slavery Society, which was founded by William Lloyd Garrison in 1833. And it stands to reason that the focus of the movement would shift as uh, fewer and fewer American slaves had any personal ties whatsoever to Africa. There were two big factors uh, drawing people into the abolition movement throughout the 1830s and 1840s. Uh, The first was Garrison's newspaper, The Liberator, uh, which saw circulation throughout most of the North. And then the other one was the, the Second Great Awakening, which was a religious revival that had um, abolitionism as, as one of its uh, main tenets, uh, particularly in the North. Garrison's American Anti-Slavery Society was the, the flagship organization uh, for abolitionism uh, early on, and had uh, prominent members such as Susan B. Anthony, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Frederick Douglass. Their program called for immediate emancipation through gradual means, whatever that means, and they staunchly opposed violence or the promotion of slave revolts. The group explained its support for abolition as a natural conclusion of America's founding principles. Garrison put it like this, quote, I am a believer in that portion of the Declaration of American Independence in which it is set forth, as among self-evident truths, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Hence, I am an abolitionist. End quote. Garrison, though, while praising the Declaration of Independence, denounced the Constitution for tacitly condoning slavery. He referred to the document as, quote, a covenant with death and an agreement with hell. Disputes over methods inevitably popped up uh, throughout the 1840s and 50s, and multiple groups started splintering off from garrisons. Most notable among these was uh, an organization started by Frederick Douglass as a response to what uh, Douglass viewed as marginalization of free blacks within the abolitionist movement. One of the leaders of Douglass's group described it like this, quote, We find ourselves occupying the very same relation to our anti-slavery friends as we do in relation to the pro-slavery party of the community, a mere secondary underling position, end quote. Now, Douglass, who we will almost certainly be doing an episode on at some point, now, he argued that the Constitution, properly interpreted, uh, didn't condone slavery, but was uh, being misapplied. Now, for our purposes, we need to point out two critical distinctions between abolitionists and the early colonizationists uh, versus John Brown. First, almost all abolitionists, like most of the rest of the population, considered whites and blacks fundamentally unequal, and not just in legal terms. Uh, While some wanted to to grant citizenship uh, to freed slaves, 
Most didn't think that they should even be permitted to vote. Writing at the time, uh, black writer William Watkins noted that the, quote, prejudice of the North is much more virulent than in the South. Free soilism, as practiced in the North, is worse than rampant pro-slaveryism, end quote. And Garrison himself admitted, quote, the prejudices of the North are stronger than those of the South. John Brown, though, was egalitarian. He held that any legal distinctions between the races were unjust because, in Brown's radical by 19th century view, the races were equal in the eyes of God and so should also be equal in the eyes of the law. And the other difference, as we noted earlier, is that abolitionists were almost entirely pacifist. The movement started with Quakers and other Christian groups and expanded to New England intellectuals, uh, who spread it into other sections of the country, including Brown's Ohio, uh, with uh, moral and religious arguments. By the 1850s, anti-slavery advocates, uh, who were distinct from abolitionists, uh, also argued against slavery on economic grounds. Primarily that slavery artificially reduced the labor demand and led to lower wages. But both abolitionists and anti-slavery advocates pushed for political and social pressure to advance the cause, and unequivocally uh, rejected violence. Uh, There were a few, like libertarian folk hero Lysander Spooner, uh, who were willing to talk about violence as a means of ending slavery, but uh, among this small group, even none were willing to actually take action. Well, none but John Brown, that is. He had reached the conclusion that slavery was was too ensconced in the national fabric to be extricated through the political process. He was frustrated with politics and politicians, and he was convinced that only bloodshed would achieve abolition. Brown drew upon as inspiration an event that was widely denounced within the abolitionist movement and, and that scared the Dickens out of the white population of the slave states. And I'm referring to the Nat Turner Rebellion. In August of 1831, a Virginia slave by the name of Nat Turner devised a plan to seize Southampton County, Virginia. Now, he recruited dozens of fellow slaves from around the area, and on the appointed night, he and his compatriots slaughtered men, women, and children as they slept. The violence was particularly um, upsetting due to the weapons that the the slaves used, uh, axes and swords and, and tools from around the farm, uh, pretty much whatever was available. The The group managed to escape into the woods, uh, and they hung out in the swamps for uh, about 30 days until they were finally tracked down by hunting dogs. The men who survived the capture by the hounds and the subsequent arrest were publicly hanged in October. So predictably, the Nat Turner Rebellion put the entire South on edge. It was a large-scale, epically violent slave uprising, and that was pretty much the slave state's greatest fear. It put everybody in mind of the violence of the Haitian Revolution. And in the North, abolitionists were quick to distance themselves uh, from Turner's uprising. Uh, William Lloyd Garrison said, quote, We are horror-struck. And he explained that that sort of violent uprising was precisely what he was trying to avoid by abolishing slavery. Now, John Brown, though, saw Turner and his rebellion as praiseworthy. He noted how the emotional impact of the uprising 
was uh, exponentially greater than the practical impact. A uh, few dead men, women, and children in Virginia wasn't going to change society. But the the palpable fear that similar uh, uprisings uh, might arise in the future spread throughout the South. And that had a little more potential. Uh, terrorism is is effective not because of the terrorist act itself, but because uh, of the target's reaction. And part of Southerners' reaction to Nat Turner was an increased willingness to take aggressive action in response to perceived threats. And that came to a head in 1837 with the mob murder of abolitionist newspaper editor uh, Elijah Lovejoy, which occurred in Illinois. Lovejoy's murder uh, came as a shock to Northern abolitionists, who, who viewed the, the argument over slavery as uh, purely an uh, intellectual and political debate. If you could pinpoint one single moment when John Brown became radicalized or militarized, uh, this, this Lovejoy's murder would probably be it. Shortly thereafter, uh, Brown swore his life, literally, like uh, over a Bible in church, to the eradication of slavery. Solemnly, he declared during a church service in front of dozens of witnesses, quote, Here before God, in the presence of these witnesses, from this time I consecrate my life to the destruction of slavery, end quote. Now, I don't want to get too far astray on, uh, on politics, uh, because John Brown was not all that interested in politics. He was a, a one-issue voter, so to speak, uh, when he bothered to vote at all. I'm sure we'll, we'll delve deeply into the political events leading up to the war in a future show, but uh, we need to note uh, another milestone that galvanized abolitionists and uh, anti-slavery advocates, and that's the Compromise of 1850. The Compromise allowed for admission of Texas as a slave state and California as a free state and made the slave trade illegal in Washington, D.C. But for our purposes, uh, the more important part was that the Compromise of 1850 included the Fugitive Slave Act. It was a law passed in response to Northern liberty laws, which provided legal cover for Northerners to assist runaway slaves. The new law required free state governments to cooperate in searches for runaways, and it was designed with the Underground Railroad specifically in mind. Now, abolitionists were, they were appalled that they were going to be legally required to support a practice which they found morally reprehensible. I don't know if any Quakers ever challenged the law, on, you know, First Amendment freedom of religion grounds, but it seems like that they would have had a pretty good case. But as a result of the Fugitive Slave Act, many more abolitionists were starting to become disillusioned with the political process, and more specifically, its ability to address the slavery question at all. And because of this, many became more willing to break or bend the law. Uh, John Brown said that the Fugitive Slave Act was, quote, making more abolitionists than all of the lectures we have had for four years, end quote. And calls for secession from, you know, influential figures and newspapers uh, became common in, in the years immediately following the Fugitive Slave Act. The secessionists in the early 1850s, though, were mostly in New England. Uh, of course, the reaction was much different in the South. 
Robert Hunter, a former Speaker of the United States House of Representatives, uh, a senator from Virginia and eventually Confederate Secretary of State, said of the Fugitive Slave Act, quote, Nothing could be more clearly established than the right on one side to reclaim fugitive slaves and the obligation on the other side to return them, an obligation which surely ought to have rested lightly enough on those who brought them here and sold them, end quote. And that last part about uh, those that brought them here and sold them, that was uh, Hunter taking a shot at New England merchants who had, you know, a few decades before found the slave trade quite lucrative, but whose grandchildren now formed the, the economic and political base uh, of the abolitionist movement. Robert Hunter wrote an essay called Origin of the Late War, in 1876, which I came across recently and am going to cite throughout this episode because, well, it's it's really well written and it paints a pretty good picture of the Southern perception of many of the events related to Brown's career. In a lot of ways, the Southern perception is a factor that's just as important, perhaps more so, uh, as the events themselves in the Confederate States' uh, eventual uh, decision to secede. Now, Hunter was not alone in justifying the Fugitive Slave Act. No less an authority than Massachusetts Senator Daniel Webster said of the law, uh, which he helped to negotiate, quote, I do not hesitate to say and repeat that if the northern states refuse willfully and deliberately to carry into effect that part of the Constitution which respects the restoration of fugitive slaves, the South would no longer be bound to keep the compact. A bargain broken on one side is broken on all sides. End quote. But notwithstanding Daniel Webster's legal argument, John Brown had no intention of complying with the Fugitive Slave Act. In one of his final actions as a resident of Springfield, Massachusetts, he helped to form the League of Gileadites, which consisted mostly of free blacks. The purpose of the League was organized resistance to the capture of runaway slaves, with violence if necessary. Uh, Counterintuitively, Brown also saw the League as a potential means of galvanizing support uh, among whites. Uh, Upon leaving Springfield, He gave this advice uh, to the League members, quote, Nothing so charms the American people as personal bravery. Negroes would have ten times the number of white friends than they now have were they but half as much in earnest to secure their dearest rights as they are to ape the follies and extravagances of their white neighbors and to indulge in idle show in ease and in luxury, end quote. I should add a quick disclaimer here that some of the quotes that I'm going to use in in this episode use language that would be considered uh, offensive by modern standards. I made the, uh, I guess, editorial decision to to leave all the language original. So Congress's encore to the Compromise of 1850, at least on the the slavery question, was the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 which attempted to resolve what was probably the foremost conflict of early United States history and culminated in the Civil War. The issue was balance of power. As the United States expanded and new states were added, the new states' status on the question of slavery was incredibly important. 
because there was a, a careful balance of power in the legislature that would be thrown off if either side got the upper hand. And as a result of that, there was an effort to admit states in pairs. In 1820, Maine and Missouri were admitted as uh, free and slave states, respectively. And the Compromise of 1850 did the same with California and Texas. So Kansas and Nebraska were slated to follow suit, but with a new twist this time. The Kansas-Nebraska Act would allow a territory's status to be decided by what was referred to as popular sovereignty, uh, which is just a fancy way of saying by popular vote. The act effectively repealed the Missouri Compromise uh, by rendering the 3630 line, uh, which was the line of latitude that uh, had previously divided free and slave territories, uh, made it irrelevant. So in response, there was a rush in both North and South to settle the new territories, especially Kansas, uh, so as to secure the invaluable representation in the Senate once uh, statehood was achieved. Now, we're going to turn back to Robert Hunter, the uh, Confederate Secretary of State that we mentioned earlier. Um, he remarked in hindsight uh, of, of this arrangement that the South, quote, had nothing to expect but to be dwarfed and oppressed, judging of the future by the past, end quote. And this was because the North's superior population and resources gave it a substantial advantage in organizing settlements in Kansas and Nebraska and the other territories, too. But at the time, it was viewed as a legislative victory for the South because Kansas was north of 3630. And northern opponents of slavery were outraged. The, the backlash led to the formation of the new Republican Party in 1856, organized around a platform of resisting expansion of slavery and uh, enacting legislation to promote big business. The Republicans denounced the slave power, a sort of conspiracy theory, uh, Southern politicians, which the, uh, the, the new party saw as holding you know, all the real political power in the Union. And it's important to note that the Republican Party was not abolitionist, uh, though there, uh, you know, there certainly were a few abolitionists within the party. Uh, most held views similar to the former representative from Illinois, Abraham Lincoln. They thought slavery should not be permitted in any new territories, but, you know, should be allowed to continue where it already existed. Uh, over time, the uh, free market would end slavery because free labor was vastly more efficient. Uh, historian James Oakes explains the Republican slavery containment strategy like this. Quote, the federal government would surround the South with free states, free territories, and free waters, building what they called a cordon of freedom around slavery, hemming it in until the system's own internal weaknesses forced the slave states, one by one, to abandon slavery. End quote. Uh, the Southern response to the, uh, the Republican policy of containment and to the economic argument that they used as part of it, was to say that the perceived labor efficiency advantage uh, only existed because northern industrialists exploited their workers, paying uh, such meager wages as to leave the workers as essentially wage slaves. Now, uh, John Brown didn't have any use for economic arguments, uh, or the Republican Party for that matter. As he saw it, it was more talk from elitists without 
any plan for action. But he was intensely interested in what was going on in Kansas. If you compare the uh, Republican containment policy regarding slavery to, you know, the policy of the United States government during the Cold War of containing communism, then Kansas was the uh, first potential domino to fall uh, under the domino theory. After leaving Springfield, Brown had settled on a uh, small farm in North Elba, New York. North Elba was an upstate uh, rural settlement that mostly consisted of free and emancipated blacks uh, who had received land grants. So with his his farming and ranching experience, uh, he was an asset to the community's less experienced settlers. And it ended up being the location that uh, the well-traveled Brown uh, thought of his home. And that was uh, where he would end up asking to be buried. While Brown was in North Elba, several of his sons had moved to Kansas as part of the rush of settlement that was designed to ensure that the territory eventually became a free state. But the northern colonists were encountering resistance in the form of thousands of Missourians uh, traveling uh, across Missouri's western border with a uh, similar, though diametrically opposed, goal. The Free Staters dubbed the Missourians the Border Ruffians, and things were heating up. Uh, Actually, heating up doesn't do justice to the situation in Kansas in 1855 and 56. For all intents and purposes, it was a political state of war. A a preliminary fight before the main event that would come five short years later. Abolitionist Charles Stearns captured the uh, tone of the bitter factional conflict which would soon erupt when he declared a, quote, duty to aid in killing border ruffians off. When I deal with men made in God's image, I will never shoot them. But these pro-slavery Missourians are demons from the bottomless pit and may be shot with impunity, end quote. Now, uh, demonization in politics, it's not an unusual phenomenon, but uh, Stearns is literally saying that the other side are demons, from hell, and that they should be exterminated without any moral reservations. And the attitudes on the pro-slavery side uh, were just as harsh. One pro-slave writer announced that the the pro-slavery forces, quote, are determined to repel this northern invasion and make Kansas a slave state, though our rivers should be covered with the blood of their victims and the carcasses of the abolitionists should be so numerous in this territory as to breed disease and sickness, we will not be deterred from our purpose, end quote. So into this atmosphere entered what historian James McPherson describes as, quote, a 56-year-old abolitionist who believed in the Old Testament injunction of an eye for an eye. Indeed, John Brown looked much like the biblical warrior who slew his enemies with the jawbone of an ass, though Brown favored more up-to-date weapons, like rifles, and, on one famous occasion, broadswords, end quote. His sons sent letters to North Elba stressing the importance of getting as many men, especially armed men, into Kansas as quickly as possible. It was an all-or-nothing atmosphere. Each side believed that the balance of power in Washington rested on the fate of Kansas, and each side was willing to shed blood to achieve its goal. John Brown entered the melee in 1855. Along the way, uh, from New York to Kansas, he gathered as many weapons as he could carry, including the four broadswords, which McPherson mentioned. 
uh, which could have come straight out of Braveheart. He arrived in October, ready to dive into the fray. His first action came in November, when he and his sons, all heavily armed, visited a polling place intent on uh, fighting pro-slavery Missourians who had crossed the border to vote. But none showed up. What Brown had planned on opposing that day were the organized border-jumping groups led by Missouri Senator David Acheson. Uh, The groups had helped the pro-slave settlers, uh, who were mostly concentrated in the northeast of Kansas uh, near the Missouri border, uh, helped them win statewide elections and and thereby establish a pro-slave territorial government that enacted laws which harshly punished any abolitionist activities. Uh, Of course, John Brown wasn't shy about his abolitionism, and uh, by April, a a warrant had been issued for his arrest. We mentioned earlier about the Fugitive Slave Act potentially uh, infringing on the First Amendment right to uh, freedom of religion. Uh, The Missouri Territory's anti-abolitionist laws were certainly unconstitutional. But Kansas at that point in time was fairly lawless. Uh, Brown visited the issuing judge's courtroom, backed by 30 armed men, and he announced his intent to resist the warrant because the laws that it was based upon were invalid. Uh, Brown wasn't alone in resisting the pro-slavery government of Missouri. The uh, Free Soil settlers, mostly in the Topeka and Lawrence areas, uh, organized a free state convention that declared the laws illegitimate and refused to recognize the authority of the pro-slave government. Now, most of the free staters were not abolitionists, and and some were uh, even openly hostile to abolitionism. But they strongly opposed the spread of slavery into Kansas. Uh, Most of these settlers were poor, recent immigrants who had been paid to move to Kansas by emigrant aid societies in New England. So their opposition to slavery was not based on any moral or religious arguments, and, and they mostly didn't you know, care what Missourians or other Southerners did in their states. But they didn't want slavery in Kansas because it weakened the labor market. For uh, working-class laborers, every slave in Kansas uh, was one less job opening. In fact, they didn't just want to keep slavery out of Kansas, they wanted to keep black people out, period. The Free State Convention declared that the, quote, best interests of Kansas requires population of free white men, end quote. In the soon-to-come fighting, John Jr. would lead a raid on a pro-slave farm near Lawrence, and in the process, free two slaves. For this action, the Free State men that he was, he was leading uh, voted to remove him from command and to return the slaves. According to John uh, Jr., the Free Staters, quote, wanted Kansas only for whites, did not want to mix up with Negroes and abolitionists, end quote. The action was limited uh, through the winter of 1855 to 56, but uh, things started heating up with the spring. Uh, President Franklin Pierce announced that the federal government was going to back the pro-slave government and its Lecompton Constitution, and he replaced a governor uh, who had been uh, mostly against the spread of slavery into Kansas with William Shannon, who was in the pro-slave camp. So the the free staters were between a rock and a hard place. Uh, They didn't want to bow down to the pro-slave forces, but they didn't want to resist the federal government either. And so they called a meeting in April to decide uh, how they were going to respond to President Pierce. 
The majority position was that they should comply with federal law and continue trying to resist slavery in Kansas through political channels. But uh, one attendee, John Brown, saw things differently. He was convinced that resisting the spread of slavery into Kansas would require violence, and he was not shy in announcing his opinion. He told the meeting that before giving in to the pro-slave government, he would, quote, rather see this union dissolved and this country drenched in blood, end quote. His fiery speech made most of the free staters a little nervous, and some actually changed sides in response to his open calls for violence. But Brown also convinced some of the audience, and he began organizing the Osawatomie Rifles, a group of between 30 and 50 armed militia, and they were preparing for a fight. Uh, what appeared to be their first opportunity for open combat uh, came in mid-May. In response to the murder of a pro-slave sheriff by the name of Samuel Jones, a group of pro-slave militia attacked Lawrence, Kansas, and destroyed two abolitionist newspapers. The Free State settlers in Lawrence chose not to resist the militia, and several buildings were burned. But the only serious casualty was the, um, the accidental death uh, of a Missourian. When John Brown heard about what came to be known as the, the Sack of Lawrence, he rode as quickly as he could uh, at the head of a force that was just shy of 40 men with rifles. But they were too late to stop the burning. The open attack uh, triggered something in John Brown, and he was uh, intent on violent retribution. But he was also disgusted by the Free State uh, struggleless surrender. He denounced the Lawrence Free State men as, quote, cowards are worse. And uh, on the night of May 22nd, he concocted a plan uh, to, uh, as he saw it, even the score. James McPherson reports that, quote, Brown conceived of a radical retaliatory measure against the slave hounds of his own neighborhood near Pottawatomie, end quote. That night, uh, only one day after the sack of Lawrence, he learned of the caning of Senator Charles Sumner on the Senate floor by South Carolina Representative Preston Books. So in a foreboding example of real-life foreshadowing, he ordered one of his sons to sharpen the broadswords that he had lugged from back east. Cryptically, he announced only that it was time to, quote, fight fire with fire and strike terror into the hearts of the border ruffians. Uh, on the night of May 24th, two days later, Brown and seven men, including four of his sons, one son-in-law, and a Jewish immigrant from Austria by the name of Theodore Wiener, uh, who one of Brown's sons described as, quote, a big, savage, bloodthirsty Austrian who could not be kept out of any accessible fight, end quote. Uh, under cover of darkness, the group hiked north from their camp, each man heavily armed. They crossed Pottawatomie Creek, and approached the home of settler James Doyle and his family. Doyle was not himself a slave owner, but he was on the pro-slave side. Brown's group attempted to approach the house quietly, but Doyle's hunting guards spotted them, and they confronted the intruders. Two of the men in Brown's group killed the dogs with broadswords. With the first blood of the night spilled, the group then knocked on the Doyle's front door. Mrs. Doyle answered without opening the door and asked what they wanted. Brown responded that they needed directions to another settler's house. When Mrs. Doyle cracked the door, Brown, 
and his men pushed their way in and announced that they were with the army, and they were there to take the family prisoner. James Doyle saw no point in resisting, and Brown's group took him and his two eldest sons prisoner, guns at the ready to forestall any pushback. The Doyles were marched into the woods near their home. The moon and stars offered just enough light to see the silhouettes of the trees and the other men walking among them. After a brief lecture about the evils of their support for slavery, Brown ordered his collaborators to execute the Doyles. And they did, hacking the unarmed, non-resisting prisoners to death with the broadsword in a display of savage brutality. Limbs were hacked off of the Doyles' bodies, and all three were left grotesquely mutilated to be found the next morning by the shocked Mrs. Doyle. The next stop was the cabin of Alan Wilkinson, a pro-slave lawyer who was serving as district attorney. Well after midnight, they knocked on the door, again asking for directions. And again, when Wilkinson began to open, the rampaging group burst in and took him prisoner. Brown marched his captive about 150 yards into the woods and, for the second time, ordered his sons and their companions to brutally murder, with the medieval broadswords, a man who was not armed and was not resisting. As with the Doyles, it was not a clean kill. Wilkinson was left nearly unrecognizable by the vicious assault, limbs cut off, body mangled, blood soaking the ground. The final stop of the night was a cabin owned by James Harris. Brown's group battered down the door and abducted William Sherman, known to his friends and family as Bill, a pro-slave settler who was staying with Harris for the evening. Like the prior victims, Sherman recognized that he had no chance of resisting the heavily armed group of eight men, and so, being ignorant of their true intentions, he allowed himself to be taken prisoner voluntarily. He was quietly marched to Pottawatomie Creek, while Brown explained the immorality of slavery and the need to purge the land with blood. Now, we don't know the precise lecture or uh, sermon that Brown recited, but it was probably something similar to a quote that several acquaintances recalled him uh, delivering on multiple other occasions. Quote, I believe in the golden rule and the declaration of independence. I think that both mean the same thing, and it is better that a whole generation should pass off the face of the earth men, women, and children, by a violent death, than that one jot of either should fail in this country. I mean exactly so, sir. End quote. In all likelihood, Brown's chilling Old Testament-inspired speech suggested to William Sherman that he was uh, in more trouble than he had initially believed. But it didn't matter at that point. He, he was under constant guard, surrounded by seven heavily armed men watching him closely, uh, along with their fanatical leader. There was no chance of escape. The best Bill Sherman could have hoped for would be uh, a bullet in the head to end things quickly. As they reached the creek, Brown gave the order, and the group brutally hacked Sherman to death with the heavy, sharp broadswords. After several deep gashes to his torso, Sherman's head was cleaved completely open. When his corpse was found along the creek bed the next morning, his brain was visible, and he, too, was missing limbs and covered in gore. After the murder of Bill Sherman, Brown decided it was time to call it a night, and so he, his sons, and their companions carried the bloody broadswords back to camp, and they rode on horses stolen from the men 
who they had just ferociously murdered with those same bloody swords. It took a little bit. Uh, News moved more slowly in 1856, uh, but within a few weeks, word of the Potawatomi Massacre had spread around the country and was being reported in the large eastern newspapers. When the details were reported, many readers assumed that the, the gruesomeness of the event was being exaggerated, as was not uncommon with news from Kansas. But even so, the bloody abolitionist murders created a stir, and most abolitionists, and pretty much all the free staters in Kansas, denounced the actions of Brown and his cohort. John Brown became the infamous Osawatomie Brown, or just the murderer Brown. The New York Herald, uh, though generally sympathetic to the free state cause in Kansas, reported of the incident, quote, he took five respectable men, heads of families, out of their beds at dead of night and mutilated and murdered them in cold blood. Southern papers spun the violence as being representative of abolitionists in general, and the Kansas Free State Movement in particular. The account of uh, Mahala Doyle, the wife of victim James Doyle, appeared in numerous newspaper reports throughout the country and framed the Southern view of Brown and his cause. Quote, With an eye like a snake, he looks like a demon, apparently a miserable outlaw. He prefers war to peace, that pillage and plunder may the more safely be carried out. And this is the leader of the Free State Party in Kansas. End quote. Yeah, that's uh, pretty powerful stuff. And, and you know, it's all the more moving when it's coming from a grieving widow and mother. Now, an, an actual leader of the, the Free State Settlers, Charles Robinson, in reference to Brown's questionable claim that the murders had, had been carried out in response to direct threats of violence uh, against him by the victims, uh, had this to say, quote, When it is known that such threats were as plenty as blueberries in June, on both sides, all over the territory, and were regarded as of no more importance than the idle wind, this indictment will hardly justify midnight assassination of all pro-slavery men, whether making threats or not. Had all men been killed in Kansas who indulged in such threats? there would have been none left to bury the dead, end quote. Even uh, one of John Brown's sons, uh, Jason, who, who wasn't involved in the killings, described Potawatomi as an uncalled-for, wicked act. But Brown did have a few defenders, though they were fairly few and far between, most notably Thoreau and the other uh, Concord, Massachusetts transcendentalists, uh, who depicted Brown as a, a righteous Puritan, fighting evil in a manner that would have made the Old Testament prophets proud. They compared him to Oliver Cromwell, a man of whom Brown was known to be an admirer. Uh, That comparison would end up uh, catching on and being employed by by many of John Brown's supporters before and after his death. Uh, Of course, Cromwell's uh, actions in Ireland were uh, war crimes under under most any modern definition, and, and war crimes may be the the softest term that you can use to describe the Potawatomi Massacre. John Brown biographer David Reynolds interestingly describes Potawatomi as good terrorism. Now, Reynolds wrote a a well-researched biography of Brown that uh, supplied a lot of the facts for uh, this episode, and he's obviously a John Brown admirer. In Reynolds' estimation, Potawatomi, uh, though shocking, 
is uh, morally defensible because uh, Brown was fighting against social injustice and uh, envisioned a free, nonviolent society. Now, I'll leave it up to the listener to judge Reynolds's uh, argument, but I-, I can't help but point out that you know almost everybody involved in politics and war believes that you know uh, they're the good guys. Uh, for his part, Brown brushed off critics by saying simply that only God is my judge. The violence of Potawatomi, Brown maintained, was absolutely necessary. So as necessary as it was or was not, Potawatomi was the catalyst for the bloodiest episode of the Bleeding Kansas show. A historian living in Kansas at the time, uh, by the name of William Phillips, reported of the days following Potawatomi, quote, Outrages were so common that it would be impossible to enumerate them. Murders were frequent, many passing secretly and unrecorded, unquote. Uh, According to a local newspaper editor, almost daily murders are committed and nothing done, end quote. Uh, Brown was among the many who would escape punishment for his, his part in the violence. Well, at least legal punishment. A group of border ruffians bent on revenge uh, for the Potawatomi killings burnt the Brown family home to the ground. And two of Brown's sons who had taken part were captured and roughed up by some of the pro-slavery forces. One of the sons had fairly serious mental health problems uh, beginning around then, and it lingered on and off for uh, most of the rest of his life. In all likelihood, it was PTSD uh, resulting from um, at least witnessing and and probably uh, committing the uh, gruesome Potawatomi killings. Uh, Another of Brown's sons would be shot dead in a violent altercation with Missourians uh, during the following summer. So, bleeding Kansas didn't result in much in the way of criminal prosecution on either side, but Potawatomi was striking enough that a warrant was issued for Brown's arrest, and he did have uh, U.S. Marshals looking, looking for him from time to time uh, for the rest of his life. Uh, but the pursuit wasn't all that vigorous, and he was able to avoid capture by hiding out uh, for the next few months. Uh, the remainder of his time in Kansas was highlighted by his participation in several small raids on pro-slave settlements uh, for the purpose of stealing livestock and horses, and in uh, two more armed clashes with Missouri militia what came to be known as the Battles of Blackjack and Osawatomie. And in both cases, battle is fairly uh, liberally defined. At Blackjack, Brown helped to defend a free state settlement against reprisal from a group of Missouri militia under Captain Henry Pate. Uh, Brown led the smaller force, but he was able to coax Pate into surrendering uh, through a combination of a surprise night attack and a clever bluff about the size of his force. Brown's men took 23 prisoners, including Pate himself, who he agreed to release in exchange for the release of his own sons, who were still being held by the uh, Missouri militia. Unfortunately for Brown, though, Black Jack drew the attention of a local federal garrison commanded by Edwin Bull Sumner, uh, who would fight for the North in the Civil War. Uh, Sumner took 55 cavalrymen to uh, restore order after the fighting, and upon confronting Brown's militia, Uh, strongly suggested that Brown probably ought to release his prisoners. Brown, of course, had little choice but to comply with Sumner's suggestion. Uh, As as with a lot of what was going on in Kansas, the significance of Blackjack and the uh, heroics displayed by Brown were hyperbolized back east. 
the most important result was that Brown was cementing his reputation as a man of action with the Eastern abolitionists uh, who read about the fight. And his reputation among Southerners uh, as a violent criminal and horse thief, which was no trifling misdemeanor at the time, uh, grew equally large. That reputation would build to a crescendo following the Battle of Osawatomie on August 30th, 1856. Now, by this point, Kansas had erupted into complete chaos. Uh, Thousands of armed militia on both sides were regularly raiding the opposing side's settlements. And Missourians were taking free state scalps, and there were just plain old murders uh, on both sides nearly every day. Uh, Of course, both sides claimed to be acting in self-defense. And to a certain extent, that's true. Uh, Once things started escalating, uh, nearly... Uh, all settlers on either side, even if they had no interest whatsoever in violence, they really didn't have much choice but to arm themselves. Now, Brown was decidedly not among the participants who got involved in the fight begrudgingly. Uh, He thrived on the fighting, and he proved to be uh, something of a natural leader. He organized and led a free state militia group called the Kansas Regulars, and Brown kept the group disciplined, uh, especially by you know, militia standards. The men weren't permitted to even swear, which is no small feat for a group of military-aged young men. But Brown had no problem with their uh, pillaging the property of pro-state settlers, uh, regardless of if they actually owned slaves or or were involved in any of the fighting or not. And the group helped themselves to uh, dozens or more uh, cattle and horses. Osawatomie itself was a free state town near where the uh, Brown family had settled. It was slated to be the latest mark for a militia raid, and this time targeted um, by a little fewer than 300 Missourians uh, led by John Reed. But Brown and his Kansas regulars learned of the planned attack in advance, and they prepared an ambush. They hid in the woods on either side of the road that was leading to Osawatomie that Reed's group was traveling down. As they lay in wait, one of the younger men among the group that Brown was leading, uh, and he was the oldest in the group, uh, one of the young guys, uh, nervous about the prospect of battle, asked the the man known as Old Brown by that point if he had any advice ahead of the coming fight. Uh, Brown reportedly hit him with this gem, quote, take more care to end life well than to live long, end quote. Uh, I I don't know if Brown actually said that or if an admirer uh, put the words in his mouth. But now, assuming the uh, quote is legit, it's impossible to tell if Brown thought that one up on the spot or had had put some thought into it. Uh, He was known to recycle quotations. But, uh, you know, even so, that's, uh, I mean, that's some gallant-sounding advice. Uh, You know, like something out of Gladiator. Take more care to end life well than to live long. That's how you get into Valhalla or the Elysian Fields, right? So armed with... uh, those heavy words of wisdom, the Kansas regulars launched a well-timed surprise attack that in short order killed about 20 of the border ruffians and wounded about 40 more. Now, uh, keep in mind, this isn't, uh, you know, an actual war, not officially anyway. This is an intense political rivalry that got uh, out of hand in a hurry. And here you have 60 casualties sustained in just a matter of minutes. It it took a little time for uh, Reed to restore order among the Missourians after the initial shock of the ambush. But 
uh, he eventually launched a counterattack uh, with the well-armed and numerically superior Missourians charging into the woods and the Kansas regulars taking flight. A few of the free staters were, were shot and a few more taken prisoner, but John Brown was able to escape across Osawatomie Creek. The route left the town undefended, and the ambush and counterassault had the Missourians hot-blooded. Reed, the uh, Missouri militia commander, ordered the men not to pillage or destroy the town. But with the adrenaline pumping, uh, they promptly pillaged and burned the town. Predictably, both sides claimed victory and embellished the details. Brown bragged to a newspaper reporter that he had stood strong against 400 men, with only 26, and inflicted over 80 casualties before finally being forced to withdraw by the Missourians' sheer numbers. So he inflated the, the border ruffians' strength by uh, more than a third, understated his own force by about a third, and claimed about a third more casualties than what had actually been inflicted. Now, even so, his men inarguably fought against daunting odds and dished out substantial damage in the ambush. Now, for his part, Reed de-emphasized the ambush part of it and focused on the countercharge that followed. And more importantly, he claimed that old John Brown, something of a figurehead among the Free State Militia, had been killed in the fighting. But as Missourian uh, Mark Twain might say, the report of John Brown's death had been greatly exaggerated. As bad as things had been in Kansas, it, it looked like uh, it was about to escalate even further. In response to a free state raid on Leavenworth that occurred during what was supposed to be a ceasefire, 27 armed Missouri militia prepared to march on Lawrence for the second time. But amazingly, the new territorial governor, J.P. Geary, was able to cool things down and put the brakes on the ever-expanding retaliation. He offered both sides clemency uh, for all of the fighting if they could disband the militias and come back to the table. And as bitter as bleeding Kansas had become, both sides agreed, and uh, an uneasy truce was declared. Over the next two years, the free state settlers would gradually take political control of the territory. As more and more settlers arrived with the aid of the uh, Northern Immigrant Aid Societies. And in 1858, Kansas entered the Union as a free state. But in the meantime, with the fighting appearing to be concluded, John Brown decided that his work in Kansas was done. He slipped out of the territory under the alias Nelson Hawkins with U.S. Marshals on his trail. Governor Geary's general clemency wasn't quite potent enough to absolve him of Potawatomi. Brown was heading for the Northeast as the symbolic leader of a newly militant wing of the abolitionist movement, and he was hoping to capitalize on the street cred that he had earned in Kansas. The New England intellectuals that were at the forefront of abolitionism, they didn't have the uh, intestinal fortitude to get their hands dirty like old Osawatomie Brown, but they had something he didn't have, money and access to people with even more money. So John Brown was going on a fundraising tour. Bleeding Kansas had only been a temporary diversion. He had bigger things in mind, and he would need a cash flow to put his plan into action. As he embarked for New England, the land of his Puritan roots, he gave a glimpse of things to come in a letter to an Underground Railroad associate. Quote, 
There will be no more peace in this land until slavery is done for. I will carry the war into Africa. That's going to do it for part one of our look at the life of John Brown. Thank you all for listening, and thanks again for your patience and bearing with me during the long delay since our last episode. Hopefully we'll have part two out before too long, where we'll take a look at the Harper's Ferry raid itself. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach the show at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. I do genuinely enjoy getting emails from listeners, so thank you all to all of you who have written in. As always, thanks for listening. We hope to talk to you soon, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.